Hello! Hello! And we're here, we're here to do a special, I'm gonna, I label these TN Bio, that stands for True Neutral Biographies. Biographies! You probably could have figured that one out. I'm Keenan. I'm Derek. And uh, today we are going to be doing uh, the biography of Lou Reed, Prick. <laughs> uh, so the, he was born March second, nineteen forty-two. Lewis Allen Reed, uh, Brooklyn, New York. He would grow up in Long Island, so he spent like the first like eight years of his life in New York. Yeah, yeah. he's walking it. Yeah, uh, he said it was real bad, and he talked a lot of shit about how bad it was growing up in New York, and everyone said it wasn't really that bad. Uh, well, growing up in New York in the middle of, or at the end of World War II, being born at the end, and growing up in the aftermath of World War II, probably not very fun. Oh, no, it probably wasn't, like, the greatest, but, like, uh, like, for example, one of his stories was that, uh, he claimed the teachers wouldn't let them step out of line to use the restroom, and they just had to go through the fence. Huh. That, I mean, seems really unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And that's just one example. Like, he he related his school to a concentration camp. Interesting. In what was probably like the early fifties. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty close by, you know. Yeah. Um. Uh, his dad's name was originally Sidney Rabinowitz. Uh, he changed it to read to sound less Jewish. Yeah. yeah, yeah, World War Two. It, it happened a lot. It, it changed the face of the planet. Yeah, I, but uh, it was just a just a different time, and he changed it to be more available for good jobs and whatnot, and not to be discriminated against. I didn't want to be a schlep. Uh, yeah, um, uh, <laughs> he was. Uh, Described as a well-tempered, respectful person by friends of the family, and was a lifelong accountant. Um, had his own had his own accounting firm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, stereotypes exist for a reason. Uh huh. Um, it, he married uh, Toby Futterman. Futterman, sorry, stumbled on that, but it wasn't very far off. Just sounded <laughs> weirder than it is. Um, and I looked her up specifically and the only thing i could find like in record about her life that wasn't in these books like there was there was a little bit more detail in the books that oh excuse me i listened to but um not like a lot uh the according to her obituary she was a beauty queen at 19 and is otherwise known as being a wonderful mother that's like basically the extent of what was in her obituary damn you know, some people are just uh, a little bit more personal. Some people don't don't talk about themselves very much. Yeah, I mean, she according to everyone, she was just the '50s housewife. Like if if you if you wanted to cast a '50s housewife, you casted Lou Reed's mom. <laughs> so that's that's just a, an interesting perspective. Um, it said that his dad was also like domineering in a way that he was just like you know expect certain things yeah like he was like a 50s husband you yeah, mean yeah <laughs> but like to, towards the kids as well you know like he was yeah. he was just like had you know semi-conservative values not like he was 
uptight Republican, but like, you know, he expected people to dress a certain way, expected things to go a certain way. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, he was just kind of uptight and a little conservative in that way. Um, uh, he was always a bit anxious and socially awkward. He nevertheless was able, always able to keep friends around. He, uh, with an early tendency towards music, he managed to play in several short-lived bands in high school, even recording an album at one point with the band The Jades. The Shades was taken. <laughs> they were The Shades. Um... And they wore sunglasses at every show. Makes sense. Yep. <coughs> that was went. edgy back then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Inside? Yeah. While you played sunglasses? your instruments? While you played a guitar oh. that maybe probably didn't even have gain on it at that point, but you were up front and center playing single notes on a guitar? Yeah. Wild shit. Uh it was also around this time that Reed started experimenting with drugs and alcohol. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it's high school, so, you know, the, the experimental of us get around at that time. And uh, he was a bit more experimental than all of his friends. Uh, I, like, I, Okay, so I listened to two books, uh, two pretty solid biographies on him, and I re-listened to... Uh, one and a half of them, and I wish I had listened to the other one first. If you're going to listen to a Lou Reed biography, go listen to the one by Anthony DeCurtis. Really good. <laughs> Very extensive. Has a lot of interviews with his sister. Interesting. Yeah. Super good. Um, the other one I don't care about, he took like 15 minutes at the end to talk about how he hoped this was a good biography and, and all his other great work. <laughs> just like, shut up. <laughs> Shut up! You listen to him talk about his own stuff. I I know he he made it sound like it was part of the book for a good part of it, and then I was like, you know, there's five minutes left. I might as well finish the book. So it says I completed it in my Audible library. <laughs> God damn! Uh, it was it's it was a lot of self-flagellation at the end. <laughs> Is that the word I meant? Sure. Yeah. He jacked himself off at the end of the book. It's <laughs> yeah. just not fun. Just trying to suck his own dick over here. Yeah, in print. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he was. Uh, but he would be regularly like smoking joints and stuff in a time where that was like, where do you even find weed in? High <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was probably the same place as we'd find weed. Oh now, yeah, yeah. Of course like, it is. Yeah. Selling drugs is a pastime that has been around since the dawn of man, and it is not going to go anywhere. I mean, it's probably the second oldest profession. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I mean, maybe food vendor. <clears throat> I think that it, I think that selling of drugs came before food vending. That could be, Because yeah, addiction. Yeah, oh, and also uh, trading yeah, you know, trading and bartering, you wouldn't like have like. But you could it. trade and barter food for drugs before, yeah, like that yeah, was. Yeah. Yeah, no. yeah, I bet, I bet it is second oldest. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um. Uh, with a. There was one funny story I don't have written down here. That was a uh, he. Uh, Went to his friend's house for a double date he had set up, his friend had set up, and uh, he went there and he was just totally sloshed. <laughs> and he's like 15. 
and he's just fucking wasted. And then he got alcohol from them and kept drinking in like his dad's nice glass because you know they all had the nice glasses out because parents were gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, that's when Lou was like, "Oh right, I gotta go check on this other girl I have in the car." <laughs> and he just went out and checked on this girl who was out there, passed out drunk in the back seat of his car. <laughs> just unbeknownst to everybody else, including his date for the night. I just Damn. Oh, and then he just dropped the glass. He just dropped the glass on the way back in. That's great. Yeah. That's a story. <laughs> he's just he's just kind of a kind of a prick. Yeah. He's described as most people as uh either hard to deal with or a prick. There's quite a few people, not quite a few, There's there were a select few people uh, that were like, wow, I just never saw that side of him. <laughs> I don't know what people were talking about. He was, it was great to work with. I'm like, <laughs> oh. Yeah, so he, he really, like, I don't know. Just an asshole, kind of. Yeah, he was kind of an asshole. <laughs> All of my idols are assholes. At least a little bit. Um, idol assholes. Idol assholes. Asshole idols. Ass idols. Ass idols. Instead of idle hands being the devil's plaything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping you were hoping I was going to laugh you out of that bit, but I want to know how you're going to finish it. Idle assholes are the devil's plaything. Oh, that's well. You didn't change enough. I okay. What's it, what should it have been? Then? I don't. I didn't. I didn't have one. That's I didn't I have was... an end for that bit. Yeah. We were saying idle assholes, <laughs> and I had an idle hands of the devil's plaything quote. <laughs> I I did what I could, and you expected more. That's on you, not me. <laughs> His sister Meryl, known to Lou as Bunny. Gave some in-depth interviews to corroborate much of Reed's self-reporting and offer her own insight with some slight corrections. She actually ended up uh, growing up to be a psychoanalyst or a psychotherapist, one of those two. Um, which makes sense if your brother was Lou Reed, you're like, what are people? <laughs> How do these things work? <laughs> um, after... Uh, his first like semester in college, he went. Uh, he was accepted to both Syracuse and NYU. He went to NYU, and then he had a big old mental breakdown that led him to dropping out and coming home. Uh, after visiting a psychologist, the decision was made to give the 18-year-old uh, electroconvulsive therapy, something that would affect him and his music for the rest of his life. Yeah, I think that affects just about everyone that ends up having it. Yeah. yeah. Like... Electroshock therapy, not good. Shouldn't do that. It's bad. Yeah, it was especially bad in, in this day and age. He was he was eighteen, so it would have been nineteen sixty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's no bueno. Yeah. That's uh, no bueno. Uh, and he also thought that uh, his dad was doing that because of his homosexual tendencies, and he thought that for basically the rest of his life, I think. Yeah. Interesting. Because yeah. that, was, that was a common treatment for that at that time. Mm-hmm. When that was considered a legitimate, like, psych- a psychological diagnosis being gay. Mm-hmm. 
crazy the past is. <laughs> don't want to go there. Don't care about the nostalgia. Don't want to go to the past. I would be burned at the stake in like 75. Don't don't send me back anywhere. <laughs> I well, my skin's brown. I haven't got a shot. I, I'm done. <laughs> you can go back in time to Mexico <laughs> or to California. Pretty much any time in California. Yeah, the problem there is I don't speak Spanish. Ah, fair enough. You should learn some Spanish. I am probably not going to do that. Fair enough. <laughs> um, Reed had always had a slightly combative relationship with his father, from the, the, but from this point on, he showed a real resentment toward him, often referring to him in tyrannical terms and telling friends how bad he could be. Though friends would often be surprised to meet the mild-mannered, friendly accountant. <laughs> the mild-mannered, friendly accountant just sounds like you're introducing Hong Kong Fooey. <laughs> Could it be Henry, the mild-mannered janitor? <laughs> Could be! No, he was, but like, you know, apart from being a little bit conservative and, you know unexpected father you know yeah he wasn't like a dick according to everyone who ever met him including his friends there was there was one girl who didn't like anybody who said she didn't like him but like she literally didn't seem to agree with anybody's stance on anything <laughs> on any of the questions she was asked anyway so <laughs> and, and yeah that's fair Uh, but Reed returned to college and went um, to Syracuse instead of NYU. Probably, this is just my assumption, it doesn't say this anywhere, but probably because he was embarrassed. Yeah, well, and, you know, fresh start. It's somewhere completely different that you've never been before. Yeah, and he, he did have a friend that was also accepted into Syracuse, and so kind of, like, reconnected with them when... He, he got there. All right, yeah. All of those are factors that make this make sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but after he returned to college, he would uh, play in, you know, more bands, just random bands, because bands happened and were more needed at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. He stopped doing live events so much. He used to he used to just be concerts all the time. Yeah. Just all the time. Yeah. Um, but one notable story from this time uh, was that after agreeing to a frat party to play a pl- frat party as well as on a boat, Lou decided he wasn't going to play the boat. The rest of the band implored him to follow through with the deal. Instead, Lou thrust his hand through some nearby glass, cutting himself bad enough to go to the hospital. In his mind, it seemed he had won. He didn't have to play when he didn't want to. <laughs> I mean... It technically works. <laughs> that was that, that's that's all that mattered for him. Yep, it it technically worked. <laughs> yeah, and technically was... correct, as we all know, is the best kind of correct. <laughs> Hacha. <laughs> um. Oh, I will say, I uh, these are all my own words at this moment. I uh, got about three pages of this before I uh, we had to record this. <laughs> and so I I didn't get all the way through writing it, but I have enough knowledge after, you know, 
listening to all of this stuff recently enough, and I'm going to go off the Wikipedia page at some point, but I will let you know when I stop reading my own words. In 1961, he gets his own show on the college radio station and calls it uh, Excursions on a Wobbly, on a wobbly Rail. Mm-hmm. On a Wobbly Rail? A rubber, rubber, rubber. <laughs> Where he would spin the latest doo-wop and jazz records at the time. Doo-wop. He, he really liked doo-wop. Who doesn't like doo-wop? I mean, it's great. But it was, it was just, it was a little different for him where he was at. Yeah. 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 Yeah, doo-wop and jazz, both both good. Yeah. I I can't just sit and listen to jazz. I, I guess I haven't tried in the last couple of years, but last time I tried, I was just like, I understand why, like, hardcore musicians would be into the musicianship of this. But outside of that, I don't really want to listen to it. Uh, I like it. I like jazz uh, every now and again. I don't know if I still have it, actually. I had a Herbie Hancock album for a while. Had Watermelon Man on it. Some good shit. All Some right. good shit. And uh, I also consider, like, Buckethead. Buckethead's... It's, he's kind of <laughs> prog metal, but it's, like, it's definitely all jazz-influenced and all based in jazz. Oh, yeah. I mean, most metal is classically influenced. Yeah, that's why I say it's kind of prog metal. Yeah. <laughs> but it's... It's Buckethead. It's it's yeah. all definitely like very jazz influenced. Prog metal is just jazz. The like a horn like so jazz is just prog metal for big band. <laughs> it's it's I mean, the same evolution. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. You do weird experimental stuff for like fifteen minutes, and you call that a song. Not always. Animals as Leaders is great prog metal, and KFO is... It's just a generalization that's supposed <laughs> to be laughed at and moved on from, Derek. I know it's not an everything. I understand that prog encompasses a lot of different things, <laughs> and, and jazz does as well. There's a lot of different things that be, can be considered in-betweens of all of that. Mm-hmm. But to say that is way less funny than what I said the first time. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I like to frustrate you. <laughs> it's fun for me. I know you do. Uh, while in college, Lou came into contact with his first real mentor, a professor, poet, and the first great person I ever met, in quotes, according to Reed. All right. He met a lot of people in his life before then, and that's the first great person he's ever met. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. He's, this is his first first or second year in college that he meets this guy. He's, like, the first, like, great person. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Now, I would consider my father and mother great people, like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... There's a lot of people that you've met before then. Just I'm just saying. I, I had a couple of teachers I would consider great people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but he was he was a professor at the, the school, and they would meet down at, like, the... The Orange Club, I think it was called, or the Orange Lounge, or the the Orange Grove, something, something okay. orange, um, <laughs> because that was the color of Syracuse U, or is the color still probably? Yeah, it would make sense. Um, uh, they would meet down there and like just listen to him talk and get advice from him, and oh, just so get real he's drunk. like a like a modern day like 
Plato or whatever. He's a modern yeah. day philosopher of, kind of, of the time, not modern day now. Obviously, yeah, yeah, uh, kind of dead now. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he died uh, with a lot of paranoid delusions and alone. <laughs> Sad. R.I.P. Uh, but he was uh, really influential and taught Lou a lot about like writing and philosophy and just like stuff. Like he was he was published and an accomplished, well respected author and poet. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. So it was really influential for me to just sit there and talk to him. Mm-hmm. And they would do it often. Like he would just meet with a group of students regularly down there. So interesting. Yeah. First real mentor. Um, it was also around this time he was introduced to intravenous drugs and took no time in making it part of his image or contracting hepatitis. <laughs> which he would do a couple of times. from Presumably from needles. He didn't seem to have like a lot of casual sex. That was more of a uh, when he felt like it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, got hepatitis a few times. Interesting. Yeah. There's more than one type of hepatitis. So. Yeah, and he like, he got it a couple of times, so yeah. I'm assuming it's not the ones that stick with you for life. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Unless they yeah, were having, like, um, flare-ups, and they just didn't understand what it was at that point. But, yeah. Um, either of those things could be true. Yeah. I think. I think. I don't know about all about hepatitis. About yeah. all about. I, I don't know a whole lot about hepatitis either. You don't? <laughs> Seems weird. Why? (laughs) (laughs) That was an ambiguously worded statement, and I don't know how I feel about it. (laughs) In 1964, a lot of implications there, Keenan, that I'm not sure I appreciate. That's why it's funny. In 1964, (laughs) he began working as a songwriter for Pickwick Records, where he would write "The Ostrich." Um, it was a like a fake dance craze kind of thing, and he did it with a guitar that was all tuned to the same note. <laughs> all right. <laughs> uh, the studio put a band together to record the track known as The Primitives, which included future Velvet Underground co-founder John Cale. Interesting. Uh, okay. Uh Reed and Kale formed a partnership in music, inviting uh, Sterling Morrison to play guitar and Angus McLeese to play drums, forming the initial Velvet Underground. Though McLeese, who would uh, refuse to play for um, pay, he, and he didn't want to be part of a structured gig, it was too much of a sellout thing. Okay. So uh, he he left when they got a gig. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and uh, he was replaced with Marine Mo Tucker. She'll, she'll be called Mo for the rest of this. Okay. Uh, yeah. Mo or Tucker. <laughs> but not Maureen, probably. Um, Reed was the main singer-songwriter of the band, which would never achieve huge commercial success, but would go down as one of the most influential bands of all time. Uh, a quote attributed to Brian Eno, and it has, I said attributed to Brian Eno because I've seen it attributed to quite a few people, but the most to Brian Eno. Yeah. Um, in this instance, the first Velvet Underground album only sold 10,000 copies, but everyone who bought it formed a band. Yeah. 
I haven't listened to a lot of Velvet Underground. I know I like, I know I have, but not a lot, and not any time recently. So I can't really pick anything out of. Yeah. So I was, uh, I was, I was thinking about holding on to this, but I, I guess I'll. I will. I listened to um, the Velvet Underground and Nico, which I'll talk about Nico here in just a second. But um, it was the first album they released. And uh, I didn't really like most of it. <laughs> Just did not. I don't understand how that started so much of a real revolution. But I mean, I guess if you'd never heard anything like it before, it was, if it, it was, yeah, it it was revolutionary. It was nothing had come out like it before that. Yeah, it's just like now going back and listening to it just. It was um, now that we're desensitized and oversaturated with so many different types and genres, and yeah, no, it was still just kind of just obnoxious is kind of the word I want to put on it, which is feels wrong because I like so much of Lou Reed's stuff, and I like I could hear Lou Reed's songs in there, but like it's young Lou Reed, yeah. he's that's he's still obnoxious. But no. I, it's John Cale's viola who's the most obnoxious thing. It's so loud in every mix. I th- I find it's it overbearing. I find it okay. That that makes sense. Then I was like, I was about to say, I find it interesting that you're you're bashing on something for being obnoxious, considering the types of music that we both enjoy. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I really like the Blood Brothers, which I've heard accurately described as a cat fight. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but. It's a it's a coordinated choreographed cat fight. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I know that it's a cat fight and I know what I'm listening to when I listen to it. Whereas when I listen and I you don't listen to mindless self-indulgence for the dulcet tones. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, listen to them for just stuff. Just weird fucking stuff. Weird fucking stuff. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's us, motherfucker. <laughs> but yeah, overall, I just thought it was uh, fine, and I could see like that there was some roots of what was to come in it, but it was just fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But... Andy Warhol caught word of the underground, and after seeing them perform, he invited them on the mixed-media art show, The Exploding Plastic Inevitable. See, and Warhol, that makes a lot of sense, because as soon as... Warhol was a weird guy, right? Yeah. And so as soon as he finds something that he sees almost as weird as him, which would definitely at the time be Velvet Underground, he's going to be like, you're coming with me, and he's going up. Yeah. And he's taken whoever's with him with him. Well, yeah, uh, there was, it was quoted, like, from both these books, it was nearly word for word that was, like, uh, Andy Warhol has a tendency to just make the people he, famous who he says are famous. Yeah, yeah. Like, he, he would just claim people and, like, this person is wonderful. And everybody's like, that person! <laughs> wonderful! <laughs> You gotta love Andy Warhol. (laughs) You really do. A gem and a treasure. (laughs) Crazy, crazy man. An absolute insane man. (laughs) Uh, 
It was under Warhol's guidance that the band would welcome model and singer Nico to join them for a time. Lou and Nico were brief lovers while recording the Velvet Underground and Nico. Uh, so, it is. It was this album, and this, this is why I'm so baffled, okay? It was reportedly this album that the revolutionary president, the revolutionary president, from oh my god <laughs> read your own sentence sir i am trying so hard you even have like a teleprompter thing that's not a teleprompter it's just my phone it may as well be <laughs> <sighs> it report it was mm. <laughs> <laughs> it was reportedly this album that the revolutionary czech president vaclav havel got a smuggled copy of in his youth that per partially inspired him into the office that's amazing and i understand why you messed that sentence up so many times because you kept seeing the name and <laughs> you were like i have to pronounce that name so you'd mess up the few words before it trying to figure out how you were going to pronounce the name yeah it's vaclav havel <laughs> i'm pretty sure that's right as far as pronunciation is concerned i I descend from Czech people. I am, <laughs> I am like predominantly Czech, so hopefully I'm getting that at least semi right. <laughs> That's a really interesting little fact, though. Yeah, uh, he invent uh, he when he was got to be president, he invited them uh, to come and like just be there and asked if Lou Reed would play a couple of songs there and like got uh, you know neat. Yeah. That's super cool. Oh, uh, he gave Lou Reed a, a copy of his own lyrics um, translated into Czech in from a little booklet that there were only 200 of that were smuggled around and handed out. Neat. Because the lyrics like his were just, like, not allowed at the time in the country. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he was the, the president there standing in front of him was one of the people smuggling those around and handed him one. <laughs> I thought that was pretty fucking cool. It is. That's neat. Uh, in what would become a pattern throughout Reed's life and career, he would unceremoniously cut ties with both Nico and Warhol. Uh, Nico would go on to a tragic life without any real acknowledgement or help from Lou. <laughs> Super sad. She would. She ended up just playing like a solo set to a tape that they recorded for her. Damn. And uh, then like. Died of just being a junkie, effectively. Yeah. Super sad. Yeah, that's rough. You could definitely just do a super sad documentary about Nico. Because <laughs> she was, like, supermodel beautiful, and, like, that, that was half the reason she was put up there. But she was also, like, put front and center by Warhol, and then just kind of dropped by everybody mm -hmm. after a little bit. And it's just... I mean, she wasn't alone in that, but it was just really brutal. Yeah. Yeah. So, rest in peace, Nico. I'm sorry I did not look up your full name. <laughs> that feels disrespectful now, and I feel bad. <laughs> um, Warhol continued on being as successful, but now he had a sour spot when it came to Lou Reed. A mm -hmm. sour spot. Um, it said that when uh, Lou Reed told Warhol, uh, Warhol called him a rat. It was, uh, to quote Lou Reed, the worst thing he could think of. 
because <laughs> apparently Andy Warhol just had this like childish nature about him. Like he was he was really fey and weird, but he also was just like kind of childish in the way he spoke. And like Rat was like an insult for him. <laughs> just imagine like hearing you Rat in the tone of you fucking piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, I, I love that story. Um, Warhol's replacement as manager would be Steve Sesnick, who would manage the band while they were recording White Light, White Heat. Uh, yeah. <laughs> In 1968, Lou Reed and John Cale's relationship had fractured beyond repair, and Lou threatened to end the band entirely if Tucker and Morrison didn't agree to kick Cale out. And instead of telling him himself, Reed sent Morrison to tell him he was out. <laughs> oh, uh, Morrison and Tucker were not into kicking Kale out, but uh, it was just like, I look, I'm gonna leave, and I'm the singer, head songwriter guy. Yeah, like I will leave if you don't agree to kick him out. Okay, good, you agreed. Now you go kick him out. Yeah, <laughs> it's just really fucked up to do. <laughs> um. Doug Yule was quickly hired to play with the band days later, learning the back catalog in a frenzied rush of, like, three days. Um, with this new lineup, the band got to work on their next album, The Velvet Underground. The self-titled album can't help but to feel like a slight in Kale's direction, as though this was The Velvet Underground and always was. Mm-hmm. Just feels like... Well, like, everything he did at this time was he was just being a dick. He just goes through this whole thing being a prick. Lou Reed, prick. Yeah. (laughs) That's a mega sense. (laughs) The follow-up to the self-titled album, Loaded, was recorded in a period of stress. It's rumored that the ousting of Kale was provoked by manager Steve Steve Sesnick's pressing. The same pressure was applied to Yule, telling him he didn't need Lou Reed, and Reed seemed to notice. Uh, before Loaded was released, Lou had privately made the decision to leave the group. On what he knew would be his last show with the Velvet Underground, he made sure his parents came. And by all reports, it was a good show with a lovely night. Uh, apart from Reed and Morrison having a small fight no one quite heard the details of. Okay. Like, he literally hadn't told his band until that night that he was... Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The Velvet Underground would release one more studio album, Squeeze. By then, Tucker and Morrison had also left the band, so this was almost all Doug Ewell. And it's uh, re- uh, reported to be fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, after his time with the Velvets had ended, Reed moved back in with his parents on Long Island. During this time, he made money by working for his father's accounting firm as a typist. That's a interesting. I mean, you got to make money somehow, I guess. Yeah, and uh, it's it just points at that like uh, uh, like if you hear the quotes about him talking about his dad, is he's really vitriolic about him, and like he writes songs where he talks about his dad. Like it's it, none of it sounds good, and then pays him like forty bucks a week as a typist. Yeah. <laughs> I know he like he didn't like you guys didn't have the same expectations for your life, but that's something most people go through. He obviously loves you. Just get over it, right? <laughs> it's 
He's like this for the rest of his life. Some people are. Uh, I mean, he does mellow out eventually, but like uh, the attitude towards his dad doesn't really ever seem to change. Mm-hmm. Blows me away. Um, he stayed there and away from music for a few months, but would return to the scene with his first solo album, Lou Reed. It wouldn't blow minds or top charts, but it was an album. Mm-hmm. Um, however, following this, he would garner interest from then-up-and-coming artist and fan of the Velvet Underground, David Bowie. It was Bowie co-producing with Mick Ronson that elevated Lou Reed's Transformer in 1972 to the next level and led to the song Reed would become synonymous with, Walk on the Wild Side. Charting at number 16 in the Billboard Top 100, it was the highest you'd ever find one of his songs. Yep, I think it, just about everyone's heard that song. Yep, we listened to it right before you know, <laughs> we started, just to just to feel it up, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's still, it's still, still bops. Fun fact: uh, in that song, he goes, and all the colored girls go, and. Uh, he doesn't have colored girls. Those <laughs> girls aren't black at all. And I, I just thought that was kind of funny. He probably, he probably could have. Yeah, probably. <laughs> oh well. Oh well. Too late now. I mean, yeah, quite a bit. It just, it just threw me off to learn that because I, I just had always assume that because yeah, because that's it, what he says. He says it in the song, and you're like, oh yeah. Oh. No. <laughs> They're just a singing group. Uh, around this time, uh, Reed's drinking would reach excess. It was said he would drink like um, two bottles in two days. And it started with like two bottles in three days, and then you know, mm-hmm. you know how it goes. And he he got uh, everybody in these books does not care about body image problems because yeah. <laughs> everybody in these books just goes he got fat <laughs> there are like five or six different people who are just like yeah he came back from his parents house and he was fat <laughs> started drinking and he got fat like wow he was never like a big guy like he definitely like got a gut for a little bit but like he wasn't like huge ever it was just weird to like he he wasn't like super skinny anymore and he was fat i don't know i get that people would probably say that about me if i put on weight maybe like enough weight but You'd have to get. You'd have to like earn that. (laughs) We also live in a different time, I guess. Yeah, we do. We do. We live in a very different time from when these people grew up. And something you have to remember when you're listening to books like this. But like, it just blows me away. This this does not matter. (laughs) Came back and he got fat. (laughs) Oh my. uh, he would also marry his first wife, Betty Kronstadt, in 1973. It was from Betty that during a time when Lou was having difficulties getting the rest of the album done, he would have a deep emotional conversation about her life and childhood. And then take a lot of those experiences and put them into the album because to help him finish it. <laughs> and uh, that album would come to be known as Berlin, which is the album... 
I started listening to after Magic and Lost. Mm-hmm. Um, I can go back and listen to my Lou Reed journey in these episodes. Yeah, right. Uh, I I actually do do a full review of Berlin. Do 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 do. I do do a full review of Berlin in uh, an episode, so I won't talk about it too much here. You also did one for Magic and Loss. I did, but that one's not for like twenty years. So yeah, <laughs> um, I am off of my own stuff now. See, that was three pages, and we're in nineteen seventy three. Yeah, we're in Berlin. Uh, and it's a concept album, and it was produced by Bob Ezrin, who is a legendary producer. He produced uh, a lot of stuff from, like, Alice Cooper and Pink Floyd and, like, just just big old names from that time. Mm-hmm. And there was a classic not classic rock name. He probably had, had a hand in one of their bigger albums. Yeah. Just a, a fantastic producer. And uh, stuff on this album was... Uh, entirely him a lot of it was just him like he like he made some string and horn arrangements and put them in and like Mm -hmm. had extra effects and like had his kids cry for a song (laughs) like it's great it's a great great album uh i really enjoy it it's 50 years old this year crazy uh see if we've got a July 1973, so it's 50 years old this month <laughs> that we're recording this. this. Is July? We're not July 19th. Yeah. And yeah, it just says July 1973, so I'm not sure exactly when. Uh, maybe the. <laughs> well, if you click on the Berlin Lou Reed album in the same Wikipedia page, it says released in October 1973. <laughs> October 5th, 1973. So it'll be 50 in like a couple months. <laughs> Lies. <laughs> uh, the. Yeah, so a lot of that was stolen just straight from that late night conversation he had. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of some really deep personal stuff about her life yeah a little bit fucked up i I just (laughs) like i get using people in your life in your work but using deep intimate details about their fucked up childhood in your work seems a little weird yeah just a little that's why you're supposed to make it ambiguous yeah it was just not he wrote it the night after and showed her to showed her the songs like Mm -hmm. immediately (laughs) without like saying yeah i took these from you he just like played her the songs <laughs> blows me away uh oh my god i'm just gonna read a lot of this straight from the things so there's not more of these silences um he found the poor reviews to uh berlin very disheartening since then the album has been critically reevaluated in 2003 rolling stone included in their 500 greatest albums of all time Lots of things get critically reevaluated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of things that just like don't don't meet the right audience at the time. Yeah. They're ahead of their time. Yeah. That does happen sometimes. Sometimes they're behind the time and just don't like like what I mean by that is like 
they were a fantastic artist but weren't in the pop trend mm-hmm. and will get recognized later as a fantastic artist of like the generation before them mm-hmm. kind of thing yeah 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 stuff like that happens too much <laughs> too much um the disappointment of Berlin re after the disappointment of Berlin Reed befriended Steve Katz of Blood Sweat and Tears and he was the brother of the manager Dennis Katz Katz K A T Z like Curry's the cowardly dog bad guy <laughs> um and Katz suggested he put together a great live band to release some Velvet Underground songs and uh, that Cats would come on board as producer, and it, Rock and Roll Animal would come out in 1974. And it was just Velvet Underground songs done by Lou Reed, basically. Interesting. Yeah. Um, this one charted and did all right and went gold in 1978. Huh. Okay. And then Sally Can't Dance was released in August 1974. It was the highest charting album in the United States, peaking at number 14. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. So, highest song was 16, highest album was 10. Huh. On the Billboard 200 for albums. <laughs> Billboard Top 100 for songs, Billboard 200 for albums. <laughs> what the fuck is going on, 1970s? <laughs> Just do 100 for both of them. I don't get it. Whatever. Um, there was too many good albums. They had to give it another hundred. Fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah, so throughout all of the 70s, Reed was super high. Yeah. Uh, on, like, a lot of things. He wrote a song about heroin. Some people thought that heroin was, like, his main jazz, but it seems to be that uh, meth... Was his his big one? Okay, and he'd just be fucking going days on end. It seemed like mm-hmm. um, people would talk about getting produced by him and being like going to sleep, or like we've been up until like five a.m. working on tracks. I'm gonna go home and get some sleep. Go home for like three hours. Wake wake up to him calling and be like, "You ready to go?" <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it would have been it would have been fun working with him. <laughs> um Metal Machine Music. That's yeah. That's... Uh was released in nineteen seventy five. Um and this and this calls it an hour of modulated feedback and guitar effects. Described by Rolling Stone as the tubular groaning of a galactic refrigerator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm actually probably going to listen to this album tonight, honestly. <laughs> um, some view it as an attempt to break his contact with RCA or sophisticate or alienate his less sophisticated fans. <laughs> And Reed uh, had a quote that was something like, uh, I didn't make it for you if you didn't like it. I made it for me. I like it. Mm. Like, Good. Like, he, he professed that it was, like, a legitimate 
musical effort. Like it, it was an artistic electronic album. Like you wouldn't understand it because it's an electronic album. Mm-hmm. In 1975. Yeah, I'm looking at the cover here, and it says Metal Machine Music. Uh, an electronic instrumental composition is what it yeah is what it says. That's on the album cover. So <laughs> it, uh, let me let me see that. Oh, it's very God. it's very Terminatory. It looks like uh, Bowie fucked Terminator, and they had Lou Reed. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, uh, Terminator Two. Terminator Two. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a look. It's a look. Uh, and that's probably a little bit what the album sounds like, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's. I'm going to listen to it. I'm actually kind of excited. I, I have not braved it yet. I have been listening, like, going through the Lou Reed catalog, and I finally went through and listened to that Velvet Underground. And Yeah, I'm, I'm finding it really hit or miss with what I actually really like about Lou Reed, but... Um, the stuff I like from him is just fucking top-notch is going to be in my top ten stuff forever for the rest of time. And the stuff I don't like, I just will never, ever look at again. <laughs> so it's he's really, really hit or miss. Well, I'm going to dive right into the deep end, because I just listened to Magic and Loss earlier today at work, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to go straight for Metal Machine music next. You're a madman. <laughs> uh... He Reed claimed that it was inspired by the drone music of Lamont Young, and suggesting the quotations of classical music could be buried in could be found buried in the feedback. But he also said, "Well, anyone who gets to side four is dumber than I am," and that's in quotes. <laughs> uh, Lester Bangs declared it genius, though also psychologically disturbing. Ooh. <laughs> I like the sound of this album more and more. The more <laughs> sentences you say about it, like the more excited I get. It, then once again, these are all just straight from Wikipedia. I'm adding flavor text from what I know about him, but this is this is just from Wikipedia. <laughs> um, the album is now regarded as a visionary textural guitar masterpiece by some music critics. Was reportedly returned to stores by the thousands and withdrawn. Was withdrawn after a few weeks. Yeah, all of these things sound so good. <laughs> Um, uh, he kind of returned to form with 1975's Coney Island Baby, uh, and it was dedicated to Reed's then partner, Rachel Humphreys, and, uh, I guess it's just kind of skipping over his personal relationships. He had a girl in college that he was with, uh, Shelley Albin, mm-hmm. uh, who inspired a lot of those early love songs from Velvet Underground and some of his stuff, um... And then the Betty Kronstadt, who he married and then kind of just fell out with. And now he's with Rachel, who is a transvestite or transgender woman, it says in here. But um, at that time, she would uh, sometimes dress male and go by Richard, which was apparently her birth name, but nobody was quite sure about any of that. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, she's a really mysterious character in all of this. <laughs> she just kind of showed up from the streets, got on Lou Reed's arm, and was there for years. And then then she left. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, 
three years. They, and at one point, they even seemed to have gotten married. They had a three-tiered cake. They had a whole big thing. They had a party. Like, huh. They did everything but say where we are getting married. And so, yeah. Okay. Kind of a second marriage. Yeah. Uh, they were together for, yeah, a few years. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. It was a really impactful relationship that uh, inspired him to write quite a few songs and uh, seems to have had an impact on not only his image, but, like, his his thought process in moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Re-released his third live album. I guess we just haven't talked about any of the, the other live albums. But live, Take No Prisoners in <laughs> 1978. And some called it his bravest work yet, and others considered it his silliest. That seems to be consensus with almost all of these albums. Yeah. He's it's either genius visionary or he's a silly, silly little man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's uh, pretty accurate. He's... Uh, he seems to have been a visionary that was a pain in the ass to work with and didn't really know what he wanted until it was too late. So so he was a human. Yes. <laughs> yes, but a little bit too much so sometimes. Yeah. yeah. That's what made his work interesting. Indeed. Yeah. Um, Rolling Stone described it as one of the funniest live albums ever recorded and compared Reed's monologues to those of Lenny Bruce. Um, The next album to come out was The Bells in 1979 and featured featured jazz trumpeter Don Cherry. I said featured. (laughs) It and trumpet were gonna fuck or something. Um... During 1979, Reed toured extensively in Europe and throughout the United States, performing a wide range of songs, including a sweet core of songs from Berlin album and the title track from The Bells, featuring Chuck Hammer on guitar synth. I don't know why I did that in a funny voice. <laughs> and it, like, de- developed on the way. Yeah. You, you like, sped up, and then you got an announcer voice kind of going for it. And I was like, where's he going with this? <laughs> Nowhere. <laughs> I'm going nowhere. Like this report, because I didn't finish it. (laughs) You're doing it now. Yeah, but, like, I mean, that first half was so well put together. Did you hear all of it? It was good. Except for that one sentence you couldn't read. Well, yeah, but, like, I couldn't read it. It's not that it wasn't put together well. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, At some point in time, Lou and Rachel just kind of fell apart. Like, they just kind of stopped talking, and like everybody else with Lou, he just kind of let Rachel leave. Just like, all right, later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people are like that. Yeah. Like, he he really just cut ties with anybody he could if it was advantageous to him. Mm-hmm. Real big on that, actually. <laughs> Most of He got into several lawsuits with different managers for breach of contract. Because he would just fire them or hire a new manager without telling them. 
We, we yeah, that's interesting. That's, yeah, that's a choice. Yeah, and that was like I think three different lawsuits. <laughs> he, he ended up losing royalties on a lot of songs, including the American Profits for Walk on the Wild Side for like twenty years or something. Damn, like he he just didn't have the money that he should have had for a lot of time because he chose to be a dick to his managers. <laughs> it would not have been hard to like buy out of the contract or find a way to like you know meet in the middle with them if he just talked to them mm-hmm. no he just had to move behind their back and go ahead and get sued about it yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> weird weird things that he kept doing like, <laughs> he he got like the thousand dollars of worth of lessons and then was like i'm gonna do that again yeah, you know, sometimes you got to do things more than once to actually learn a lesson. Anyway, this man's like one of my heroes. <laughs> uh, Reed married British designer Sylvia Morales in 1980. Um, and he wrote several songs um, inspired by her, including stuff from Growing Up in Public, which came out in 1980, and in 1982, The Blue Mask, um, which is... Uh, critically acclaimed, and uh, the the listener reviews are a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it it's less um, divisive overall. It seems to be a more middle of the road. Everyone's like, yeah, that's that's all right. Mm-hmm. If you if you take all the reviews, can't go wrong there. Yeah. Um. Yeah, these people call it genius. <laughs> Plain spoken, deeply felt, and uninhibited. <laughs> yeah. But of course they're going to point those ones out. Um, after Legendary Hearts in 1983 and New Sensations in 1984, uh, he was reestablished as a public figure and became a spokesman for Honda Scooters. That's a very interesting choice. I also find it, and I understand that once again, this is kind of like I think a thing of the times. But he's doing almost an album a year at this point, yeah, which is a lot, yeah. Like in in a day and age where well, sometimes we go for years in, in between getting albums from some of our favorite bands, you yeah, know? Like, for real, like. Like, for instance, I know you don't listen to them a lot, but Tool just dropped a new album for the first time in, I think, a decade. Yeah. It's ten years, and they were like, oh, yeah, we're still making music. Hey, we'll put out an album. <laughs> like, we're still around. And, like, for, to be putting out an album a year is a lot of music to have to put out. It, it is. It's a lot of production. And I think that's where a lot of um, older artists had a burnout. Mm-hmm. Because, like... Not only did you have an album, but you had to tour every album you released for at least a couple months. Yeah. And so you'd just be almost constantly touring or recording. Mm-hmm. And, and would... while you're touring, you're probably writing new songs for the next record. That way you don't fall behind. Right. And, yeah, it, that would be a really stressful process, and it, it wouldn't end up being very artistic at some point. It would be very much a cranking it out and i can see why some music would be bad or why you might do something like metal machine music or why you might you know 
take some stories from the person you're with and turn yeah. them into songs or like anything to draw that inspiration because you have to keep pumping this music out yeah absolutely so it's i i get it but i also like damn that's fucked up yeah it's Shit. it's just a crazy thought that had had come across in my brain and i had to get it out there are various times there's two albums a year i Quite frankly, if I'm being totally honest, if I had a full year, I think I could do an album a year. If that was my job, I could do an album a year. Mm-hmm. Like, like could no... you do it alongside touring and recording? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right now, I could do four albums minimum. Yeah, and that's just you. Yeah, that's... the band also has probably if we brass tacks, we could probably put together three easily. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, right now, I could be well ahead of time and still do more albums, because, uh, yeah, there are songs in there that aren't fully written. And my point Tangent, is, we have a mixer. We should really start recording music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this whole thing has been a tangent. But uh, yeah, point is, yeah, uh, an album a year, I think I could do. Any more than that seems like it'd be pushing it with tours and recording involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I don't have to tour and record, or if I don't have to tour and just have to record, I could do two or three albums probably. You have to tour though. You got to promote the albums you're putting out. Otherwise, yeah. no one's gonna listen to them. Exactly. Yeah. But that's that's why I said if. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, uh. I've distracted him. He's lost his spot. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so in the 1970s, Reed had been, like, really publicly pretty pretty gay, but not, like, seriously very gay. Uh, like, he'd hook up with guys and stuff, but, like, he almost always had a wife, except mm-hmm. for Rachel, who was, like you know, either confused or just fine with swapping gender fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, either way, like, she was referred to as a man by multiple people in these books. They were old-fashioned people, but... Yeah. Um, they did seem to go by Rachel more often than not, so I used the pronoun she. Because mm-hmm. when she was in a dress, she was Rachel. When she was in a suit, she was Richard. That's... That was almost a direct quote from somebody. Yeah. Um, so, I I don't know. Overall, he seems to have been mostly straight, but pretty bisexual. And really liked to play it up because he liked to uh, just piss people off. Yeah. He really liked to inflame people. And various um, anecdotes of him just... Just saying things to be a dick. Like, he went to his one of his girlfriend's parents' house, and they were, like, really liberal. So, like, oh, great, he's going to get along with them. Awesome. And then he just goes and says some really, really conservative value shit just to piss him off. <laughs> it's just like, oh, that's pretty funny. It's, that's pretty funny. That's, I approve. <laughs> um. Uh, the 
1980, uh, Reed had renounced druggy theatrics and uh, he stopped drinking or had attempted to stop drinking. He never really quit all throughout his life, but he did. He did stop for like months at a time, mm-hmm. and uh, and he was just openly married. Like you know, so interesting. Yeah, yeah. He just uh, has a weird relationship with sex and gender, <laughs> like a lot of us. But like at a time where that wasn't like a normal thing to do in public. Yeah, yeah. Um, he performed at Farm Aid, which I think is interesting. <laughs> he didn't do a lot to like just go out of his way to help people. So, either they paid him really well, or he actually thought it was a worthwhile cause. Which, yeah, just once again is rare. Like, he didn't really do political stuff very much, Mm -hmm. despite his stance on a lot of things. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was probably just, you know, better making music. My message is out there because of the music I make, not because I'm out there talking. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um... In 1986, he released Mistrial. And to support the album, he released two music videos, No Money Down and The Original Rapper. Um, with a W. <laughs> uh, I thought Lou Reed was going to spit bars. <laughs> he does that in the album. And the next album, in 1989's New York. It's, it, it's kind of rappy the whole way through. It's like, <laughs> I th- it, it's a concept album about New York, which is, you know, where he grew up and where he spent a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Bowie called him the king of New York. <laughs> um, uh, it's just... It's really, really uh, quick-paced vocals and in Lou Reed's style, so it does. it just sounds a little rappy. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, like, have a problem with rap. It's just, like, the style in which it's presented in this album is odd and i just i don't groove as well with it as i feel like i should yeah that's fair yeah but yeah but it became a second certified gold work when it passed five hundred thousand sales in 1997 neat and was nominated for a grammy award for best male rock performance interesting male rock vocal performance interesting it's like a pitter-patter song. Yeah, he seems like a man who... He keeps, like, breaking and defining genres. He keeps, like, oh, what's the next new thing I could possibly make? What's the next new sound? What's the next, you know, like that kind of almost... Yeah, uh, a lot of people still refer to him as the godfather of punk. And uh, he doesn't... He didn't ever really like that title. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. <laughs> like, that's one of the coolest titles you could possibly get, dude. And you're like, I don't really like that. <laughs> uh, well, them cord-smashing, yelling little kids and their mohawks with their, their jackets that have the sleeves torn off. Why do you need a jacket with the sleeves torn <laughs> off? What's the point of the jacket? Put studs on those sleeves. Why do you what have so you many doing? patches? Is your jacket full of holes? It doesn't even have holes in it. <laughs> then why do you have the patches? My day, we used those patches out of necessity. <laughs> you know what was holding together my leather jacket? 
Patches. Patches. Flannel patches, not your fancy patches with your logos and your pictures. I had to color with a shit marker to get a logo on there. You know how long that took? Three days! It's literally a marker made of shit. <laughs> it's It stayed in there. <laughs> Never got that stain out. <laughs> or the smell. <laughs> no one was asking about the smell. <laughs> Um. Oh yeah. So it's not noted in here, but uh, Andy Warhol at some point in time in his life got shot in the chest. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, I think I did. It was just fucking crazy. Yeah. He got shot in the chest and lived, and he got more reclusive and weird after that. Obviously. Well, I mean, so would you? <laughs> yes. Yes, I would. Uh, but he lived and made it through that. But uh, he did die pretty suddenly a little later, like a few years later. <laughs> Words are not your friend today. Nope, they're fighting me. They're fighting me hard. Um, but uh, Lou Reed waited a little too long to even try to call, and it was something they both kind of remembered until Lou Reed died. Like, <laughs> like he waited too long to call when he got shot, mm-hmm. and then when he died, he just like, oh, should have done that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but. Him and John Cale met up at uh, Warhol's funeral, and they decided to reconvene and work on a a tribute album of sorts for him, which was called Songs for Drella, uh, which was also a nickname that he did not like. (laughs) It was uh, Dracula and Cruella put together. Uh, and I guess people would not say that to his face, but it was a common enough nickname that people knew who it was. <laughs> um, and it seems to be like, um, I haven't listened through this one, but it, it's like a kind of a biography of Warhol's life sung through Warhol's eyes. Mm-hmm. And it's a it seems like a really cool project. It's honestly the next one on my list of albums to listen to. Mm-hmm. I think it's... Sounds really interesting. Yeah. And uh, I'm interested in Andy Warhol. I might try and find a biography of his book. I, I don't know if I want to read his book because he seems like a madman. That's the exact reason you should read his book. If, if he wrote an autobiography. No, if he wrote an autobiography, I will I will I will do that one. <clears throat> Absolutely. But he, he wrote a book, um it's like the Zen of Warhol or something from A to B and back again. It sounds like it would be a good book. Yeah. yeah. I like to read the ramblings of Mad Men, though, so... Yeah, I... I, can, I am someone who also does that, so... <laughs> I can see the appeal, and I, but I just... I want to know about his life in detail, and I don't think a book he wrote himself would have that. Yeah, yeah. Pro- maybe. I feel There's like... There's probably it, anecdotes in there you can find. Yeah, but, like, I feel like his his book would be art, and then you wouldn't really understand what was going on in his life for most of it you know what i mean like it's not that i don't respect the art it's that i want to understand objectively about his life mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> um uh, after the successful recording of the songs for drella they decided they'd try and get uh marine tucker and Sterling Morrison back, and they did, and they did a short little reunion tour, 
of the Velvet Underground in Europe. Oh, neat. And uh, it was especially cool because through the years, the Velvet Underground had uh, built up a cult following in Europe and were kind of big over there. And in the time that the Velvet Underground had originally performed, they had only performed in the United States in one show in Canada. That was as far as they'd ever gone outside of the U.S. Yeah. So going to do the European tour was actually a, it was a pretty good move for all of them. Like, it wasn't like make them super rich thing, but it like it did well. It was it was a good enough thing that they were able to like get some money off of it and uh, release a live album. And yeah, neat. Yeah. And uh, oh, uh, Magic and Loss. Yeah. Came out in 1992. I'm sorry. I was wrong on the date of that. <laughs> um, it's inspired by the death of two close friends from cancer. I think that's pretty obvious from the album. It is extremely obvious from the album. Yeah. Uh, it's really, really good. I've also done a full review of this album on another episode. And Derek, just listened to this album today. I did. I just, just listened to it today. After you harping on me for a while <laughs> about listening to it. And uh, it's very, very good. It's it's quite good. Yeah. yeah. It's real good. Um, uh, I guess in 1994 he appeared in a, a celebration, the music of Pete Townsend and The Who. <laughs> and uh, he and Morales were divorced in the same year. I don't know if those two things are related. I mean, it sounds like they are. Statistically, they are now. <laughs> oh, that's... This is a really fun anecdote that I really hope is true. <laughs> um, in 1995, Reed made a cameo appearance in the unreleased video game Penn & Teller's Smoke and Mirrors. If the player selects the impossible difficulty setting, Reed appears both... Uh, Reed appears shortly after the game begins as an unbeatable boss who murders the player with his laser beam eyes. Reed then pops up on the screen and says to the player, This is the impossible level, boys. Impossible doesn't mean very difficult. Very difficult is winning the Nobel Prize. Impossible is eating the sun. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, I really hope that's true. <laughs> I, I know that game was going to be like weird because it was a pen and teller video game but it, yeah it was just never released yeah um uh the velvet underground were inducted in the fall hall of fame in 1996 uh, at the ceremony reed kale and tucker performed a song titled uh it was a brand new song that they had written called last night i said goodbye to my friend and it was dedicated to sterling morrison who had died Damn. And it was the last time they would play together. So this yeah. seems really, really fitting. Mm-hmm. It's just like the perfect rock and roll career, if I'm being honest. <laughs> Sad, but like, wow. Yeah. You couldn't write, like, Spinal Tap isn't that good. Right? <laughs> I've not seen Spinal Tap, so that's not fair. But I just know that that's like the iconic one that it's, people it's, do. I can't believe you haven't seen Spinal Tap. That's a great movie. It's not about a real band. It doesn't matter. It's a great movie. It's the I just like there's so many music documentaries that I have on my watch list. Like I'm slowly watching them, but I just don't have that much time. They're all so long and detailed. <laughs> <laughs> 
Don't you miss the days of behind the music when you got a quick one-hour rundown of a band's career and you're like, cool. No, no, I'm so thankful for this. (laughs) Some of these are like three or four hours long, Derek. (laughs) And they're they're like on the streaming services. These aren't crazy people on YouTube. Like, (laughs) Like three or four hours long. There's a George Harrison one that's three and hours long. It's just about George Harrison, not about the Beatles generally. <laughs> That's nuts. That's pretty crazy. Um, in February 1996, Reed released Set the Twilight Reading. Reeling. Set the Twilight Reeling. <laughs> Goodness. And uh, contributed songs to the musical Time Rocker which was uh, a theatrical interpretation of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. Interesting. Yeah, and uh, it did fine. (laughs) Apparently the stage direction was better than the music, according to most critics. Okay. Uh, From 1992? Oh, yeah, so Reed met Laurie Anderson in 1992. And they kind of hit it off right off the bat. Uh, They had all the same interests. They had all the same plans and goals and all the same not wanting children, which was a big deal with his current partner Mm -hmm. who wanted children, even though they were like 50. (laughs) Craziness. Craziness. Don't have children that late. What are you going to do? Break your back? You're going to break your back? Bend it over to pick them up? (laughs) gonna break your back that's not fair i I know a lot of people who are like older and doing fine and like you know work out and and are fine but like seriously why gonna break your back why would you do that uh uh but yeah so he and laurie anderson is an avant-garde artist i think she plays an instrument i can't remember what it is um oh my gosh she is a composer musician musician electronic literature writer and film director neat uh violin she was initially trained in violin that's what i was thinking of (laughs) she's got way more to her um yeah yeah um so she was referred to as uh, short-haired and dykey by other people. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people were surprised when her and Lou got together because, well, they just thought she was a lesbian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gotta love people. Yeah, people are, people are great. But um, the fact that she was a little bit more androgynous did seem to be a good thing for Lou, who was, you know, notably bisexual at that time, like, mm-hmm. throughout his life. So that was probably like at that time, and by at that time, I mean his whole life. Yeah. <laughs> it just like yeah, yeah, it's probably notable. Um, but yeah, like I said, he didn't get divorced until 1996. Mm-hmm. So he was like kind of having little dates with her, but not really for a couple of years before yeah they eventually got together and then they would end up married in 2008 but they'd been together yeah that's quite a time jump yeah for a while 
Um, in February of 2000, uh, they, uh, there were people working on poetry, which was Edgar Allan Poe poetry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I got that one. Kind of softballed it in there. I mean, there's... Look, they spell it like that in here, and then they go on to explain the whole the whole thing. And it's just like, I definitely got it. I, I, I got that one. Yeah. That one was not ambiguously worded. Yeah. Um, the... In 2000, he released Ecstasy, which was one of his last, like, fully original releases. Um... But the work on poetry led to uh, The Raven, which is a two-CD set that is a, just a full deluxe, like, retelling of Edgar Allan Poe's works. Like, some of them are just rewritten in places. <laughs> and, like, he just throws his own songs in there, too. Like, his own, like, old songs. Okay. Yeah. Just because? Yeah, it's... It is a crazy album to listen to. I am a huge fan of Edgar Allan Poe. Like, I am as well. Like, wanted to get Annabelle Lee tattooed on my back. <laughs> That's a crazy thing. I, he I means want... the poem. The whole poem. The whole poem, yeah. Like, legitimately the entire thing. That's that's what like I want. Like those monks from fucking Spirit of Vengeance with the writing all over their skin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just that whole poem framed on my back. Uh, but it's, uh, Reed doing all of that, and it's features, you're gonna love this. It's, <laughs> it's got a cast here. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, Ornette Coleman. Okay. Legendary jazz artist. Mm-hmm. Willem Dafoe. Okay. David Bowie. Mm-hmm. And Steve Buscemi. What is even <laughs> happening right now? Uh, you you've listened to this, I assume. Yeah, it's crazy. Is it is it good? Yeah, it's in places. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes, I like how I turn caveman is good. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it kind of seems to fall off the rails, but not really. I mean, he we we've jumped a few sharks on this one. I understand it going off the rails a little. Yeah, it's it's a crazy crazy place to go to just like to rewrite the whole just to rewrite he rewrote parts of the raven why i know i know why i just like it's it blows me away i just would i yeah i would love to have heard of like a faithful adaptation from him of those poems yeah and you can still sprinkle some songs in there if you want to i guess yeah and like have the other people read stuff out like read individual poems out with your music button that's great it yeah. sounds awesome when they do that yeah that that sounds pretty fucking cool but <laughs> I, I haven't listened to it. the old poems man that's yeah weird. that's that's a weird thing to do that's a weird decision to make uh uh, Christ in hell. Uh, oh, he saw the 9-11 attacks from his window, which is interesting. That is a, that is an interesting fact. I was about to say fun fact. It's not so much fun, but yeah. it's interesting. I almost said, and that's fun. And it's, not, <laughs> it's not. Um, 
In 2003, Reed released a book of photographs called Emotions in Action. That's all right. Yeah. A uh, true artiste. Yeah, and he's, he said that it's supposed to tell a story, and it's just a bunch of st- still images. That, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's supposed to tell a story. Okay. Yeah. Be interested to look at it, see if you can glean the story from it. Yeah, it would probably be a little bit hard, because he says some of his albums tell a story, and sometimes I just don't don't see the through line <laughs> like he tells a story and then it's literally just him stalking like this one person taking pictures every <laughs> now and again, like throughout their day or something <laughs> that'd be pretty fucking funny actually <laughs> they went shopping and then they went on a date <laughs> um he did a Leonard Cohen tribute show in October of 2006 and played a heavy metal version of Cohen's The Stranger Song. I don't know what Lou Reed doing a heavy metal cover would be. Yeah, I'm not sure. I was trying to envision that. <laughs> um, but in 2008, Metal Machine Trio, uh, which was his new group, featured Ulrich Krieger on saxophone. And Sarth Calhoun on electronics. Okay. And they provide uh, they played improvised m- instrumental music inspired by Metal Machine music. Neat. Uh, they were apparently a lot better than Metal Machine music was. Um. Then Reed played with Metallica in 2009, which led to them. Um, Collaborating on Reed's very last album, Lulu. Okay. And this was... I have not listened to this yet, and I would like to, but I, I have not yet. Um, but it was mostly negative reviews, especially from Metallica fans. <laughs> Did not like it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think it sounds super interesting. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Um, uh, he had suffered from many, many, many things from all these years of abuse on his body. Oh, I imagine. And, uh, at one point he needed to get a liver transplant and, uh, he was about to like, he was just like, please just get them to send me home. I'm like, the liver's not coming kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And like at that moment, the doctor comes in and like, we found you a liver. (laughs) And so he, he got a liver transplant. And uh, he felt like he was bigger and stronger than ever before and, like, started posting, you know, like, videos of him, like, doing Tai Chi, which was something that had entered his life in, like, the late 80s and never left. He was doing Tai Chi his whole life. Okay. Um, but on October 27, 2013, he died from liver disease in his own home. Um. His last words were apparently from his wife, like, uh, from his wife said his last words were, uh, take me into the light, where he died very peacefully doing Tai Chi. (laughs) Okay. In in the light of the sun on his porch. All right. I guess he died how he wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, um... 
After his death, there was obviously a lot of tributes. Oh yeah, I forgot a fun fact about the liver transplant. Uh, his his doctor listened to Walk on the Wild Side while he while he did the thing. <laughs> you got to. Uh, just like that's just a really fun thing. You would obviously have to throw on a Lou Reed album if you were inside of him with blades. <laughs> Be listening to metal machine music. Um. <laughs> I feel like you might cut some stuff up. <laughs> I just want to fucking kill this man. <laughs> uh, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2014, so posthumously, and inducted by Patti Smith. So that's pretty fun. That's neat. Um, yeah, that's uh, pretty much Lou Reed's life. Um, that's 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 a gist. Like I said, the, there's a fantastic book about his life uh, called... I think it's just called Lou Reed. Let me, let me see. It's by Anthony DeCurtis, who is a music journalist and critic. Okay. Uh, he does an amazing job. Yeah, it's just called Lou Reed by Anthony DeCurtis. DeCurtis. And um, don't... Uh, I mean, you can. It's got some fun little anecdotes that aren't in the DeCurtis one, but... Uh, Howard Sunez, Notes from the Velvet Underground. I'm just going to do a short little review of this audiobook because <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's read by the author, and uh, he does accents and voices, <laughs> and he can't do voices. <laughs> he does this one weird flat voice for every American man, and then a different weird flat voice for every American woman. <laughs> it's really, really odd. <laughs> I, like, some of his voices... Uh, anyway, he shouldn't have done his own voices, and this is the same guy who, like, at the end of this book spent quite a few minutes just going like this is this is the biography or this is the one i hope to write there have been many before this but i hope this encompasses them all like <laughs> you know i this 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 is my pedigree this is how good i have been in the past and i hope i'm bringing that work to this it's just like dude why you gotta be so unconfident here at the end like it just could have just finished the book and i've been like that was a fine biography and now i'm gonna think about this you douche you should have put it at the beginning as a foreword yeah something like, like hey if you don't like this one i'm sorry but it, it, just be confident in your work yeah. first of all yeah. <laughs> it's just real odd real odd to me that that was a a thing that happened in that book. Anyway, Lou Reed's super fascinating as a guy because why did he get so many chances? There's a lot of things that um, I kind of just skimmed over in this whole thing, but like... It sounds like a man with a lot of charisma is the thing. It sounds like, not unlike Warhol, it sounds like a man who is commands the attention of people. He, he does seem to do that for sure because like, uh, there was a story about how... Uh, he wanted, like, specially made guitars, and he got, like, these, the headless-style guitars made for him. Mm -hmm. And then after a few months, he just throw them away. But, like, the the guitar guy had to go way out of his way to get this guitar done right, to make it work right, and he wanted this special kind of wood because he heard it was made, like, the best wood for guitars. But he still wanted it with a headless neck, and he wanted it on this body. So he had to, like spend a whole fuck ton of time figuring out, like, glues and just different attachment methods to make it work. 
And then like after a couple months, he was just like, oh, I'm done with that guitar. <laughs> and it's just like that's like he would want that level of care and attention put into everything in his life. And then as soon as it was, you know, finished, he was finished with it. Mm-hmm. And that went the same way for people. Yeah. Just. Yeah. Just a weird, weird guy. <laughs> oh yeah, and the, the the story about the guitar owner was like uh he didn't buy like a lot, but he had a way of making you feel like he was the most important customer you had. Mhm. It's just like I don't know what that skill is, but it doesn't really feel like charisma all the time. Is why I'm just so hesitant to to agree with you on the charisma yeah, thing. It's, it's it's a definite commanding of attention though. Yeah, it's a definite it's a definite commanding. And I guess you would You'd probably have a high charisma on your character sheet, but it'd be like this weird kind of almost intimidation. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's an odd way Lou lived his life. <laughs> it was an odd way in which he ended his life. It just seemed to have this like picture perfect death, and after living through just torturous conditions that he put himself in Mm -hmm. and like so many times there was various people who were quoted as saying like i would not have been surprised if he died while i knew him like i wouldn't have been surprised if in the paper i had read that he was dead like and he 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 didn't live like a long long life he was like 71 i think yeah but But he seemed to live a lot of his people that he knew he outlived a lot of the people that he was hanging out with in the scene for sure and he out, like, he outlives Morrison, which isn't really fair. That dude was a tugboat captain for, like, 30 years. <laughs> he went and finished and got his degree, was a teacher's aide, and then went and was a tugboat captain. <laughs> like, that dude had a real interesting life and then died of some weird cancer, like, shortly after he retired. Yeah. And, and never really got very much money from most of the stuff that he did. That's the American dream right there. Yeah. <laughs> that just sucks Mo Tucker was raising five kids as a single mother when she finally got the opportunity to get like actual royalties from the Velvet Underground that she deserved it's crazy yeah yeah. there's a lot There's a lot of stuff I brushed over so I really recommend that, that book by Anthony DeCurtis and uh, Lou Reed influenced all of your favorite artists oh definitely so uh it's good to know about them, but it's also really interesting to look back on the music industry at this time because, once again, if people nowadays, like, yeah, they don't release albums for years, but, like, that's because they're crafting them and, like, record companies have understood that they need to give artists more time to release things to be good, mm-hmm. to release a quality product instead of releasing 15 products and having 15 good songs over 15 albums. Yeah. Like, uh, so we usually get good, high-quality recordings of a good, well-put-together album. Where was I going with this? Where did I start? With the high production quality, or the the the, the amount they were putting out. Right. Yeah, I don't remember what my point was. That sucks. <laughs> but, uh... I do feel that if Lou Reed had, oh yeah, if somebody had today released some of the albums that he released, 
they would not be given the opportunity to release another album. Yeah, yeah. Like, just outright. Mm-hmm. You couldn't do something like Metal Machine Music that was just a fuck you to the record company because you had more albums on your contract. Yeah. Like... Yeah, there's no way. Yeah. Well, and I think the the main music scene nowadays, like, you're, you're looking at indie bands. You're looking at smaller... Uh, production companies you're not the 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 greater music industry i think is fairly dead it's almost impossible the there is no more rock star life to live no yeah, there we is no more being picked day. up there is no more being talent scouted at a show and signed that is dead that's gone yeah, we're just, never getting that back you gotta make it up now and so now you see Kind of almost like what we do, like like little local bands playing local shows, people putting together studios and sound things in their own homes, in their own basements, putting out their own music. With the internet, we can network and put it out to to literally the whole world from our basement. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It's just a matter of getting seen and heard from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, um... Lou Reed was an early adopter of the internet. He did, he did love technology. He uh, was an early adopter of most technologies, whether he knew how to use it or not. <laughs> Which is pretty fun. And uh, we've been talking for way too long, so I'm going to go ahead and say this was the Lou Reed Report. If you want to know more, check out the books that I talked about and um, go listen to the albums. Yeah. You know where to find us if you want to tell us your thoughts. Yep, just search for True Neutral on Google. Yeah. You'll find us. You'll find us. We're there. We're, 